So go ahead and turn to Song of Solomon this morning. Scott covered Proverbs last week. We're doing Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon a little bit out of order. We'll get to Ecclesiastes next time. Song of Solomon chapter 1. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. And we won't read the whole thing. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. Why is this book in the Bible? How many of you guys have read Song of Solomon? Just a quick show of hands. You guys are a little bit familiar Hopefully, maybe it was in last year's reading program. But why is Song of Solomon, excuse me, why is Song of Solomon in the Bible? What are we supposed to make of it? Um, One Jewish rabbi called the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, a lock to which the key has been lost. Because there are several challenges to us in reading and interpreting this song. First of all, the subject matter. Um, According to Jewish tradition, They would not allow young men to read this book until they were either married or age 30 because they knew what was in the book. Um, It's hard to interpret because of the language. There are over 40 words in the Hebrew text that are only found in Song of Solomon out of the entire Old Testament. And one of the ways that we try to interpret and understand um, unique words is by comparing them to other places to see how they're used. So it becomes difficult when there's only one place in the scriptures where these words are used. So the language, the the very terminology is difficult for us. And not only are some of these words unique, but just the imagery that that the author uses is strange. Um, I don't know if you've told your wife she looks like some animal that's usually associated with livestock. That would probably not go well for you. But in in this culture, uh, this ancient Middle Eastern culture, where livestock was a sign of strength and life and fruitfulness, that was a good thing to say your wife looked like livestock. But that can make it hard for us to interpret. Another thing that makes it difficult for us is the structure. If you've read it, you know it can get confusing. Wait a second, who's talking to who? And when is this? Is this before the wedding or after the wedding? Because I'm kind of confused as to why they're saying some of these things. So the structure itself can become difficult. And part of that is because it's a song, so there's fewer details Um, There's not a strong narrative structure where we have setting and explanation of who is who. It's a song that consists of feelings and emotions and expressions of longing and delight. So that can make it hard for us to trace uh, the the, the structure and, and interpret this book. Another challenge to us rightly reading and understanding this song is our presuppositions. All of us come to the scriptures with presuppositions, and some of us cannot imagine a book of the Bible being about physical intimacy explicitly. That just kind of breaks the category for some of us. Why would this be in scripture? And on the flip side, some people come to this book and read it as only being about sex, almost in a junior high sort of way. Maybe you've been in a locker room where anything that gets said can be turned into some sort of innuendo. And so some people can start reading Song of Solomon that way, which will get you in trouble as well. That's not how we should read it. But we believe that the scripture tells us about itself that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable to us. And that includes the Song of Solomon with all of its challenges, all of its difficulties, with its unique subject matter. This book is for our good and reveals to us 
Even though it does not speak about God directly, it does reveal to us something about God. And it's intended to shape our lives. So to go through some of the background info here, the title um, in our English Bible is called Song of Solomon. It's sometimes called the Song of Songs. We see that in verse 1. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. That, that, those first words, the Song of Songs, is meant to be a superlative, meaning that this is the best of songs, similarly to how we speak of Jesus as being the King of Kings, meaning the King over all kings. This song is the best of songs. The setting and time for this book is, is that it was likely composed during the United Kingdom. So this is during the monarchy. So Saul and then David and then Solomon ruled over the 12 tribes of Israel. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, uh, was an idiot and made some poor decisions and the kingdom was split in two. But this, this book appears to be written during that period of the United Monarchy, before Israel and Judah were separated. Um, there's reasons for this. It seems to be a time of plenty. Um, which fits uh, Solomon's reign and rule where Israel was at its most prosperous point in history. It seems to be a time of, of, of many foreign spices and agricultural bounty being brought in. We know there's a lot of trading during Solomon's reign. And there's even references to cities um, in a positive manner that probably wouldn't have been referred to that way um, after the, the kingdom was split. And there's references to Solomon himself. So it makes sense that this book was likely written around the 10th century B.C., before Judah and Israel split. So who wrote the Song of Solomon? There's kind of two views on this, and I'll share both of them with you, because um, if you held a gun to my head and asked which it was, I would say, I don't know. I'm not 100% certain. The traditional view, and kind of the majority view, is that it was written by Solomon himself, and written um, about probably his first marriage. We know, um, unfortunately, that Solomon did not heed his own wisdom, and was married many times, and had many concubines as well. So perhaps this was written by Solomon um, as a young man about his first marriage. Or this could have been written by Solomon in his old age, realizing the goodness of something he once had. And so if you take this view that Solomon is the author, then that means that you will probably look for some sort of united narrative. You'll be able to see throughout this book the different stages of the relationship between Solomon and his bride. You'll see the stage of desire and longing as they're courting, and then the consummation at the wedding, and then their shared life together. You can kind of split the book into those three portions if you take Solomon to be the author. There's a second view, which is one that is, I'm a little bit partial to, and that would be that this is not a, a singular song written about two people, but rather a collection of songs that was written for the occasion of Solomon's wedding. And perhaps Solomon was the author of some or all of these songs, but they could have been even written by other people. Um, but think about how big of a deal a royal wedding can be. Um, I don't know about you guys. Did any of you get interested in the recent royal wedding that happened across the pond? Jacob shakes his head. Not interested at all. Some people really are. And if you watch that royal wedding, you'll know that music was a big part of the celebration, wasn't it? There was choir pieces, there were solos, there were special songs. They're all written about a celebration of love and marriage, and it would have been probably even more so in Solomon's day. So think about this massive royal wedding, and imagine that there was this collection of songs that was put together for Solomon um, to celebrate his wedding. And this view acknowledges that there could have been various authors but it was rather, that it, it was maybe more like, um, if you think about like classic country love songs of the 80s, maybe you have a CD like that. 
And it's all these love songs that have similar theme, but they're by different people, but they're all centered around a common theme. Perhaps Song of Solomon is more like that. And the benefit of taking that view is that when you read through it, you don't have to try to say, now, wait a minute, who's the Shulamite and who's the shepherd and which one's Solomon? And you don't have to make everything fit. You're able to simply read them as celebrations of love and longing and desire. And, and those things resonate with our experience um, and show us something about the world as it's intended to be. We'll talk about that later. Uh, so those are kind of two different views on, on who wrote uh, the Song of Solomon. We do know from 1 Kings 4.32 that Solomon wrote 3,000 Proverbs and his songs were 1,005. So Solomon was a prolific songwriter. And it's possible that this is one of his best songs, if not the best. Or possible that some admirer of Solomon came along later and kind of took together like the greatest hits of Solomon and put them together. Um, we don't know for sure. Like I said earlier, the, 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 um, the, the traditional view is that Solomon is the author. It's not airtight. Um, but I'll present both of those to you. You can... Read and discern for yourself what you think is the best fit. So that's a little bit about the authorship of this book. But what about the genre? The genre here is wisdom literature. It occurs with Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes together in the section known as these poetic wisdom books. It's poetry and it's meant to be wisdom. First and foremost, as we see in verse 1, it is a song, which means that this was meant to be sung. It might seem obvious to you. But that should help us read it and understand it. This was supposed to be sung. And that's one reason why it's hard for us to interpret everything in this book with a great deal of specificity. It's kind of like this, and maybe if you have kids, you can understand this. Trying to teach, when you teach your kids how to tell a joke, your kids probably, maybe you guys understand, they want to immediately explain the punchline to you. You know, knock, knock, who's there? Who? Who, who? Are you an owl? Now, see, because an owl says who, and you said who, who, and you sound like an owl. When you explain the punchline, it kind of loses, it loses its force. So at least I tell my kids, you don't have to always explain the punchline. That's the point of the joke. Song of Solomon is a little bit like that. Not that it's a joke, but in the sense that if you over-explain it, if you over-explain the metaphors and the structure, it kind of robs this book of the impact I think it's supposed to have. And the impact it's supposed to have is to resonate with our emotions and our longings and to paint a, a flowing picture of love and joy and desire and pleasure. And such things cannot always be analyzed and explained like a math problem. They just can't. Only art can capture such beauty, and that's what this is. It's a song. It's poetry. Uh, it's not only a song, it's also um, wisdom literature. It occurs in that section of Scripture. And Scott, you gave us a good definition of wisdom last week. Can I put you on the spot? Do you remember what, it, what you shared with us? Uh, wisdom is the application of knowledge, and science is the application of, or as technology is the application of science. So the application of knowledge. There's a quick, concise definition of it. I think um, I could add to that and share another definition. That's a good one. I agree with it. I would say amen to all of it. You could also define wisdom if you're a pastor and make things more wordy and less concise which may be less helpful at times. But you could also describe wisdom as a way of living that recognizes the truth of God, submits to the will of God, and reflects the character of God, which would be the application of knowledge, exactly what Scott shared. Um, but that's what this book, Song of Solomon, is. It's wisdom. It means that this is something that is to apply to life. God's wisdom applies even to romantic relationships. God's wisdom applies, God's truth applies even to sexual intimacy. There is no area of our life that's off limits 
to the truth of God. And when we know who God is, we understand what God desires and what pleases him and what his purposes are, then we are to apply that. And Song of Solomon shows what the application of that knowledge looks like in the context of romance and love and marriage and physical intimacy. So what's the theme of Song of Solomon? The theme is really about the goodness and the glory of one of God's gifts to us. The gift of human love, marriage, desire, sexual intimacy with all of its joys and all of its pleasures. The phrase, my beloved, occurs 24 times in this book, which tells us what it's about. But how should we interpret this book? Because there's been a variety of approaches to reading Song of Solomon throughout the centuries. This book was often taken by early church leaders and church fathers, theologians, as being allegorical, meaning that this isn't literally about two people who are in love with each other, who are expressing that love and enjoying that love. That's what it looks like on the surface, but this is really teaching us a spiritual truth. This is an allegory, but the thing is, that gets kind of awkward. Does the Song of Songs metaphorically portray the love of God for his people? Is the Song of Songs pointing to Christ and the church? Well, you know if you read your Bible and if you attend our Sunday morning services here and hear Michael preaching through Hosea, you know that that metaphor is not illegitimate. In fact, it's one that we find all throughout Scripture. Hosea's marriage offered a picture of God's faithful love to faithless Israel. Paul teaches the Ephesians that marriage is supposed to reflect Christ's love for the church and even to be a living portrait of it. But in Hosea and Ephesians, the text itself makes such connections crystal clear. But as you read the Song of Solomon, there is no such evidence in this book. The text rather includes real names of people and places like Solomon and Tirzah and Lebanon and Jerusalem. And it lacks the clear narrative storyline that one typically finds in an allegory. Although the allegorical approach has had strong support in the church since the days of people like Origen, the Song of Songs appears from every angle to be very simply what it is on the surface about the passionate desire of two people for each other. As a methodology in general, not just in Song of Songs, that allegorical approach that tries to read scripture and then see everything as symbolic as something else, that has a lot of weaknesses because meaning tends to be arbitrarily assigned by the interpreter. We don't have time for it this morning, but I read some crazy different interpretations of this book. When you read specific portions of Song of Solomon and see that even those who adopt the allegorical approach and say this is a picture of something else, they have like all these different interpretations of what it's a picture of. So there's explicit language in here about the two breasts of his beloved. And some people say this is the two testaments, the New Testament and the Old Testament. Some people say this is faith and repentance, these twin graces. And all they come up with a hundred different interpretations. Um, it's kind of a punchline, but if you ask scholars, if you ask six different scholars for an interpretation, you'll get 12 different answers that's kind of what happens when you adopt the allegorical approach. So there's some big weaknesses here. As Moise Silva points out, there's no controls, and people end up seeing what they want to see. And this leads to a plethora of suggested meanings and tends to obscure rather than reveal the truth. So when we look at the text itself, the allegorical approach is really hard to sustain. Uh, also for this reason, because the roles don't cleanly fit the relationship between Christ and the church. Um, if you read the Song of Solomon, you'll see that oftentimes uh, the female in this text appears to be more aggressive in her pursuit of her beloved than the other way around, running out into the streets to seek him, things like that. But this hardly can describe the interactions between Christ and the church. 
The New Testament tells us in Romans 5, 8 that he's the one who loved us when we didn't love him, that he pursues us. So this allegory breaks down when we try to actually work it through all the details. And another troubling issue arises when we consider the erotic description of the groom in chapter 5, verse 10 through 16. You can look over there with me if you want. Chapter 5, verse 10, the bride praises her beloved, says, My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. So is this the language of worship for Christ? Because if so, then Carrie, we need you to write some new songs for us to use in church. No, this is a woman who is beholding from head to toe her beloved and relishing what she sees, delighting in it. It gets kind of awkward, even more so in other places, if we try to make this about Christ in the church. Another reason I don't buy that interpretation is that this book is missing the elements of sacrifice and forgiveness and atonement and faith and repentance, all of which are key aspects of our relationship with God. So it seems best to understand this text in its natural sense, to take it at face value and to understand it not as a metaphor, but as God's unambiguous blessing on the joys of human sexual expression between man and woman in a marriage. And if we read it that way, what we'll find is that the Song of Songs has much value for the church today as we combat a distorted view of sexuality and a distorted view of marriage in our culture. I think that Song of Solomon is really a commentary, if you will, on Genesis chapter 2. Flip back there, if you will. Genesis chapter 2, the institution of marriage. Remember that God created Eve. He fashioned her out of the rib of Adam, and then he gave her to the man. God designed marriage. God walked the first bride down the aisle, in a sense, and presented her to the man. And what does Adam do when he sees his wife? He bursts into song, doesn't he? Because only a song can capture the joy and and describe the beauty and the thrill of what Adam is tasting in that moment. Genesis 2.22, the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And Moses comments on this song and says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What we find in the Song of Solomon often is two people who are very naked and very unashamed. This is marriage as God intends it to be, one flesh. In many ways, we see in Song of Solomon the ideal of marital love, what it's supposed to be when it's unstained by sin, unstained by selfishness, unruined by shame. When Adam and Eve sinned, Derek Kidner comments, to love and to cherish became to desire and to dominate. Sin is what messes up marriage. 
Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden because of their sin, and their marriage became difficult. It's interesting, you see a reversal of that in the Song of Solomon. You see two people often entering into a garden, using the language of a garden, and enjoying marriage as it was meant to be. This is God's intention for his creatures, and it is good, and it is holy. So this is a book about marriage and its pleasures, plain and simple, but that doesn't mean that we throw out the idea of God's love for his people or Christ and the church, because we have to understand what is marriage itself about. And to answer that question, we have to read the Song of Solomon in light of the rest of the Bible. And I love how our, the other guys teaching this class have shown us time and time again how these books fit with the rest of Scripture. And Song of Solomon is no different. As we have already mentioned from Ephesians 5, marriage is supposed to be a reflection of Christ's love for the church. And as we see in Hosea, marriage describes for us the relationship that God has with his people Marriage emerges for us in Genesis as the first social institution in the garden and becomes that metaphor all throughout Scripture. We see in the New Testament that Jesus is called the bridegroom, that his his first earthly miracle was performed at a wedding. And we see in Revelation that all of history is moving towards this marriage supper of the Lamb. Marriage is meant to give us a category for understanding God's love. So as we learn about the depth of longing, the thrill of desire, the pleasure of embrace in the Song of Solomon, it should teach us something about the good and beautiful gift of marriage, a blessing to all mankind, but our deepened understanding of marriage and marital love ought to expand our capacity to marvel at the mystery of God's relationship with us and to understand that if the delights of of earthly marriage and human love can be this rich, this deep, this intoxicating. How much greater the glory of Christ. How much more so when we enter into his presence. Not to experience something that is earthly like the Song of Solomon. But to experience something so great and so profound that not even marriage can fully capture its delights. So as you get a bigger view of marriage and human love, it should not diminish this idea of Christ's love for the church. I think it actually expands our categories for understanding it. So we do read it in light of the rest of Scripture in that sense, but we don't read it purely as an allegory. It is about human love. So two errors we avoid. One is allegorizing the book about being simply about spiritual things. But a second error, which bears note, because some tend to do this, some people swing the pendulum in the opposite direction. They they don't focus on anything spiritual, and they rather see this as sort of an inspired sex manual, a how-to book that should be mined for practical tips, where you try to answer the questions, what kinds of things are we allowed to do in marriage? And this approach makes everything in the book sexual and sort of reduces the value, I think, of this text of Scripture. And again, can cause you to read things into it that maybe aren't there. Again, the locker room humor that sees everything as only being sexual. Um, And that's also wrong because I think it ignores the deeper meaning of sex and marriage. And in a sense, ignores as as honest and as, um, as transparent as Song of Solomon can be, it's also very discreet. It only talks about sexuality in ways that are sacred and holy, respectful, with honor, it's not, it's not like reading a trashy romance novel that's intended to arouse and gives specific details about specific acts. It is in, intended to be vague, even as it talks about very explicit things. So we need to read it with that right approach. Um, so what's the structure of Song of Solomon? Well, depending on who you take the author to be, 
you can take the structure different ways. But as you read through it, you will see a pattern. You'll see a description of the woman or the man by the other. You'll see the woman describing him. You'll see him describing this woman whom he loves. They'll describe them, giving physical descriptions, and then express their desire to be with that person. That's sort of the rhythm as you go throughout this book. Wow, this is who you are and what you're like, and I long to be with you, and I enjoy being with you. And it's this back and forth between the two of them. One commentator points out, this book in many ways reads like a Shakespearean romance drama. The betrothed young woman and her beloved sing praises to each other about how fair and beautiful they each are. Then they get married and they live happily ever after. Except unlike Shakespeare, there's no murder and no one commits suicide. So it's even better than Shakespeare, right? It's better than that. So if you take the united narrative view, uh, you will see a bit of a narrative structure. In chapter 1 all the way up through chapter 3, verse 5, you could, you could read this as the courtship period. Two people that have not yet come together, but they're in love and they want to be together. So you see this patient waiting that's mingled with longing. You can read chapter 1 up through 3, 5 as sort of this courtship period. And then when you get to chapter 3, verse 6, all the way up through chapter 5, verse 1, we come to the wedding ceremony itself. The celebration, you have Solomon coming, you have all these people gathered, you have songs of joy, and then you get to the consummation of the marriage itself. At the end of chapter 4, through that first verse in chapter 5, verse 1, The marriage is consummated, and what they have longed for and waited for is now tasted and enjoyed. And then following that, all the way through the end of the chapter, you have a description of their love as married people, enjoying its delights, but also facing some of its challenges. Not everything's always positive and easy, just like marriage and life. So that is one way you can understand the structure. If you take the sort of anthology, like the greatest country hits of the 80s view, like I'm a little bit sympathetic to, then this sort of chronological structure, not that you don't see it, but becomes less important. Um, And you can read it with a little bit more flexibility and see that some of these songs can fit a variety of occasions. Just like when you listen to a love song on the radio, it can kind of connect to different people in different ways at different times, depending on where you are in life and what your experiences are. Because the main thing is not the the, the, the chronological story it's telling, the main thing is the emotional experiences that are being exchanged here um, throughout the book. So two different ways you can read it. Neither one is wrong. Um, both are, are options. So what's the theology of the Song of Solomon? Well, I think this is where it becomes very important for us to study and understand this book. Um, you could say that the cult of self is the religion of our day. Um, I shared a little bit about that at our, at our ladies' retreat. And if you start seeing the worship of self as being the religion of our day, it will make sense to you that sex becomes the preeminent act of worship in this false religion of worshiping self. We can see that because sex sells. And sex, in a sense, has become sacred, meaning that if you tell someone else what they should or shouldn't do when it comes to sex, that is the highest form of blasphemy in our culture. You're now a heretic, and you have violated the sacred doctrine of the worship of self, which says that sex is the pursuit of my pleasure in whatever way I see fit, as long as no one gets hurt and there's consent. That's basically the only guardrails that are there for sex today in our culture. And even those guardrails are shaky and won't hold up forever. So sex today is thought of in terms of a human right, and it is an act of worship 
And Christians often are the ones standing up and saying, hey, you guys, that is going to destroy you, and it's going to destroy society, and it's going to result in judgment. When you elevate sex and make an idol out of it, and you transgress God's designs for it, it is sin, it is evil, it is wrong, and it is dangerous, and it is destructive. But does that mean that Christians are anti-sex, or that the Bible is anti-sex, that God is anti-sex? Song of Solomon gives us a resounding, all caps, triple underlined with exclamation points. No, no, Christians are not against the joy of sexual intimacy or even sexual freedom, but we understand that within the bounds of God's design. As you read the Song of Solomon, you will read sensory language about touch and smell and texture. You will read that that God has created us with a capacity for emotional and physical delight. Why did he make us that way? It's a gift. He didn't have to create us with a capacity to desire and enjoy these things. But he did because he's good. And this gift is not to be suppressed. It is rather to be enjoyed and expressed rightly in the right context. You will find in Song of Solomon words of affirmation to those who are married. Language of longing and desire. There's no hint here of the Roman Catholic idea of celibacy being more holy than marriage. In the Roman Catholic Church, priests are to be unmarried. You might say, why? Is that just some dumb tradition? Well, it is a dumb tradition, but why did it become a tradition? Why did it become a tradition? It became a tradition because of this view of sex as being carnal and of physical things being lesser than the spiritual things. And so to be truly holy and to have true communion with God, to set aside as much of the physical as you can, somehow gets you closer to God. And we see the bad fruit that that has borne in the Roman Catholic Church in many ways. It's not how humans are designed to operate. But here we see that human sexuality expressed rightly in marriage is good and holy. Look in chapter 5, verse 1. This comes right after the wedding night, the consummation of these two lovers. At the end of verse 1, you see this chorus. All the guests who who were gathered there, back in those days, a wedding wasn't from 2 to 4 p.m. on Saturday. It was a seven-day ordeal at least for normal people. If you were a king, it could have been even much longer. So there's all these people. There's days and nights of feasting and celebration. And you see those gathered at the feast cry out, Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. I'd say that's pretty positive and affirming towards sexuality and the joys of pleasure in marriage these are the words of the wedding guests in chapter 5 but because they are preserved in scripture these are God's words to us today if you are married today God says to you eat friends drink and be drunk with love his divine blessing and stamp of approval here on married married bliss and love this is the theology of song of Solomon I think it's interesting how the song of Solomon presents sexual intimacy And this is, again, where I think it can be helpful to us. We understand it as a gift and as a good thing, but how do we approach it? Because too often our view of sex and even our participation in those things in marriage is shaped more by selfishness and shaped by the world's distortions and definitions and counsel than it is shaped by God's creative intentions. We don't have time to expound the whole book, but just a couple of points. The sexual desire and activity described here is always phrased with tenderness and care with honor and praise. 
So if you're married, that should describe your physical relationship with your spouse. Tenderness, care, honor, and praise. Again, the language here is discreet. There's no crudeness, no pornographic language. This isn't some trashy novel. It is holy, sacred, honest, radiating beauty. It's not exploitative. And that should shape how we approach sex within our marriages. You'll see language of exclusivity and permanency again and again. The refrain, I am my beloved's and he is mine. The groom says, like a lily among the brambles is my bride to me. There's language of commitment and loyalty and exclusivity here. We see here that sexual desire is a desire not simply for pleasure, but for a person. That's one of the biggest things I came away with reading this over and over again the last few weeks. In our culture and society, the pursuit of sexual pleasure is just that. And other people become a means to that end. Whether it is pornography, whether it is one night stands, whether it's just selfish marriages. But here in the Song of Solomon, we see not the pursuit of sexual pleasure, the pursuit of a person and their whole being, their appearance, their character, their beauty. It's a desire to be lost in the beauty of the other and to fully give yourself to that other. It's the desire of a person, not just the desire for pleasure. Pornography and hookups and selfish sex reduces sex to the pursuit of an experience and dehumanizes the other person. That's something we need to learn. We see, uh, again, that blessing and satisfaction and joy and pleasure come to those in marriage with no shame or regret. There's many reasons why many of us bring shame and regret, embarrassment into the marital bed. Those things are things that we don't have to carry with us. If you have sin and regret in your past, the gospel gives us the tools to experience complete forgiveness, to understand those sins are cast as far as east is from west. And if Christ has covered them with his blood, we don't need to bring the shame of those things to the marriage bed. We also see that just because the world is taken and corrupted and Satan has distorted God's good design doesn't mean that the gift itself is something that is shameful or dirty. No, we need to reclaim this from the enemy and not allow him to sort of take this good gift hostage. It is something that is to be enjoyed without shame. I think the theology of Song of Solomon also protects us from wrongly starting to think or feel or believe that God is stingy and that his no's outnumber his yeses. Remember back in the Garden of Eden, he said, you can eat of every tree of the garden, any tree of the garden, except this one. Too often, our view of sexuality, we think of there's a million no's, all these things that we can't do, and there's only one thing you can do. Song of Solomon flips that on his head and says, here's a million yeses, and there's only one no. Don't pursue sexual intimacy outside of this marriage. That's the one simple no. We come to understand that holiness in marriage means feasting, not fasting. Too often we see sexual purity as as some sort of monastic pursuit of keeping ourselves from all these things that everybody else enjoys and that our flesh wants to pursue. But marriage is presented as a feast, not a fast, in the Song of Solomon. I also think that it protects us from wrongly thinking that If we're going to resist temptation, then sex itself needs to be minimized or trivialized. And I think this is particularly a challenge for those who may be single. To know that this is good and to have a desire for it, but to not be able to partake, that's a challenge and a battle. 
And the temptation can become to say, well, that's really not a big deal. And it's not that good. Um, and, and we think that that will help us to stay away from it. Married people can do this too. Maybe you have frustration in your marriage. And the way you deal with that is to say, well, that's not big a deal anyway. I can live without that. And just try to minimize it. Song of Solomon does not um, tell us to view it that way. We don't minimize or trivialize God's good and beautiful gifts in order to help us resist temptation. Rather, what we learn is that the key to rightly viewing sex is wisdom. Remember, this is wisdom literature. We don't disparage God's God's good gifts. We seek to walk in wisdom. Sexual intimacy is what Paul instructs for married believers in 1 Corinthians. Mutual rights and duties. But this doesn't mean that the approach should be, well, honey, it's, you know, the second Friday of the month, so we need to get that checked off the list. Or even, well, it's Tuesday, so you know what that means. No, empty and boring sex as a biological function is nowhere near what God designed, nowhere near what God desires um, for our marriages. We need to have the right view of it. We need to understand it rightly. Song of Solomon gives us a glimpse of love and physical intimacy and romance as it ought to be, untainted by sin, conflict, and selfishness. There's only honest praise, earnest desire, mutual honor, joyful celebration. So the Song of Solomon really harmonizes, again, with what the rest of Scripture teaches us. Ecclesiastes 9.9 says, Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. In Proverbs, it says to delight yourself in the wife of your youth. Be intoxicated always with her love. I find it amazing, even in Deuteronomy. You don't think of Deuteronomy being very romantic, but in Deuteronomy 20, when it's giving instructions for warfare, it says if, if there is a man who has betrothed the wife and has not taken her, they're not yet come together in marriage, it says, let him go back to his house. Let he die in the battle and another man take her. God valued marriage and desired for his people to experience the joys of marriage so much that he said it's worth you actually not helping win the battle, to go home and love your wife and for your wife to enjoy her husband and not risk losing him in the battle if they've never had a chance to share in this joy together. So again, this is wisdom literature. What wisdom do we take from this? Obviously, sexual intimacy is good and beautiful, but not to be engaged in outside of or before marriage. There's a refrain throughout this book that we see multiple times, and this is the key wisdom that it shares with us. We see it in chapter 2, verse 7, if you look at it. In chapter 2, verse 7, the bride says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Chapter 3, verse 5, we see this refrain again. Not not verse 5. Yeah, verse 5. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. It pleases. This is wisdom that goes against what the world promotes. The world tells us to explore and stir up our sexual desires. But the wise woman here in Song of Solomon speaks to the young women of Jerusalem, those who are not yet married but are entering into that age where they want to be, not to stir up these desires or awaken these desires until the right time. It's interesting to pair Song of Solomon with Proverbs. There's this, these multiple instructions to young women, young women, young women in Song of Solomon. But what do we find in Proverbs? 
my son, my son, my son, my son. And they both give us wisdom concerning sexuality. You could summarize the wisdom of Proverbs concerning sexuality this way. My son, don't be an idiot and pursue sex outside of marriage. In chapter 5, in chapter 7 especially, we see these extended warnings to avoid the, what the King James calls the strange woman, the woman whose character is suspect, the immoral woman. But then you see um, also the positive admonition in chapter 31. Avoid those kind of women. Pursue this kind of woman, the woman who is wise, the woman who is godly, the woman of character. That's the woman you should pursue. Look to marry that kind of a girl. That's the wisdom to sons is, hey, stay away from this. It'll wreck your life. Pursue this kind of a woman. Then we see the wisdom for young women in Song of Solomon. You see not scare tactics. Rather, you see this woman emerging from the, the, the wedding chamber and saying, this is amazing, but wait till the time is right. And then enjoy. Patience and then pleasure is the wisdom that is shared. And I think that's instructive to us because we need both kinds of wisdom, don't we? Some of us need to read, men and women, the wisdom of Proverbs and say, do not go down that path. It leads to death. It leads to suffering. It leads to shame. You, you can't take coals into your bosom and not be burned. We need to hear those warnings, but we also need to hear the positive admonitions to delight in the wife of your youth. Pursue this kind of a person. Wait until the right time and then eat and drink and be drunk with love. Parents, we need to make sure that we disciple our kids according to these twin tracks of wisdom. If you don't teach them the right view of physical intimacy and love, the world will disciple them. And they'll disciple them in a different way. So scripture speaks to it. We need to speak to it. We can't just avoid these things because it's uncomfortable or awkward or we don't, maybe we have regrets from our own experience. We need to teach wisdom to the next generation coming up after us, our children. We need both. We're getting into a little bit of application now. I'll just wrap up here real quick. For those who are younger um, and, and unmarried, I would encourage you like the Song of Solomon, patience and then passion. The wisdom of this song is not trying to keep you away from something good with scare tactics. The logic here is, this is amazing, but wait until the right time. And for those of us who are married, keep this in mind too. One of the best apologetics, one of the best arguments for purity, sexual purity, is passionate Christian marriage that is holy. To show them that this can be for you. What about for those of you who are single? and perhaps wishing that you were married. How can you read the Song of Solomon and benefit from this? Because it seems that not much in here would apply. I think it's helpful to, to read this as a right celebration of sex and love and its goodness to be able to praise God because he's good. When we demean the gifts of God, we demean God. So we don't want to minimize what God has Done. I think reading this rightly as a single person can help you to rejoice with those who rejoice. It can be painful and difficult to celebrate someone else's anniversary. But those of us, all of us really, single or not, are really, we find ourselves in the chorus here in Song of Solomon, celebrating the goodness of love that's not necessarily our love. When, when we go to a wedding, we're, we should be able to rejoice with those who are being married. We clap and we smile when they kiss after they've said their vows. Uh, we should be able to celebrate this, even if it's something we are not personally participating in. I think it helps us to reject cynicism. Again, as we tried to show earlier from the theology of this song, 
It's a poor self-defense mechanism against envy and discontentment to try to minimize romance, love, marriage. But also, we can read this in a way, if you're single, that helps you not to idolize human romance. Because this is an idealized marriage. And if Solomon wrote this, he also experienced a lot of sexual failure and brokenness, bad marriages. It's not always like this in anybody's marriage. But Christ, his love is always faithful. His love is always perfect. His love is more satisfying, more loyal, more permanent than even the love of the lovers in this song of songs. And by God's grace, you can say of Christ that I am his and he is mine. So as you read it, let it expand your categories for joy and understand that what you have in Christ transcends even the transcendent song of the lovers in Song of Solomon. If you're married this morning, I hope that reading Song of Solomon can help rekindle the flames. Like when you go to a wedding and it makes you remember your own. Read it and be encouraged. Remember the joy and the passion of your love with your spouse. Keep in mind that your love for your spouse is to be an exercise in praise and affirmation. If you've never said nice things to your spouse about how they look, well, the Bible models that for us. You should try it. Just don't tell her that her teeth look like a flock of sheep or something like that. Figure out something that will communicate love and praise to her. Keep in mind, married friends, human love is to be exclusive. Cultivate desire and love for your spouse and your spouse alone. And keep in mind that human love is to be communicated both verbally and physically. But for our married friends here today, what if your love doesn't look like this? Maybe it can be frustrating to read this and say, that's not what my home looks like. Well, it can. It can look like this. It can look more like this. It was meant to. We understand that sin is what quenches the flame. It's, it's, it's the regret of sin. It's, it's, the, it's the bitterness towards the sin of the other. It is the, uh, the selfishness that we carry in our hearts that keeps us from experiencing this kind of joy and delight. So perhaps reading the Song of Solomon should move us to repentance if we cannot see ourselves in its drama. Uh, there is room for us all to grow in the way we enjoy and steward God's good gifts. We'll go ahead and close with reading Song of Solomon 8, 6 through 7, because I think this really captures the spirit of it, and we'll wrap up with this because we need to be done. Chapter 8, starting in verse 6. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Lord, as we've gazed briefly into your word this morning, we want to humble ourselves and acknowledge that we are too often shaped by a worldly view of marriage and love and romance and physical intimacy. I pray that you would renew our minds with your truth, that you would enable us to humbly receive and enjoy your good and gracious gifts. We thank you, God, for the glory that we see in Song of Solomon, glory that echoes a greater glory, the glory of your love for us. Lord, for those who who are experiencing frustration or shame or regret, I pray that they would come to the cross and that sins would be dealt with there and that forgiveness would be freely received and given in marriages. 
And I pray, Lord, for those who are single, that you would satisfy them with your steadfast love, as the psalmist prays. And that they would be able to rejoice with those who rejoice, that they would be able to wait until the time when and if you provide uh, marriage for them. I pray for those of us who are married, that as we steward the love we have for our spouses, that we would also seek to encourage uh, those who are waiting, and that we would share wisdom with them, and that you'd be glorified in your church as we seek to live in a way that honors you and your designs. Amen.